Let's read here in Leviticus, first of all, tonight. The book of Leviticus, chapter 26. These are the conditions of restoration as outlined under the Old Covenant. Verses 40 through 43. Leviticus 26, verses 40 through 43. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they have trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, and then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and then accept of the punishment of their iniquity. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them, and they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despise my judgments, because their soul abhorred my statutes. Now turn over to the New Testament, Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten, very familiar verse here. This confirms this eternal an everlasting principle of repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Pray with me tonight. Father, I pray, Lord God, for a sobriety here. Lord, that Your Spirit would come. Father God, that You would do what no man can do in our midst, Father. Pray, Lord God, that You would come in such a way, quicken us with this Word, Lord, that we might fear You as Your people, that, Lord, we might consecrate You, Lord God, and sanctify You as our dread and our fear, Lord. I pray in the name of Jesus, expose every heart, all sin, any carnality, Lord God, all flesh, everything outside the person of Jesus, exposed by Your light and Your purity, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to talk about genuine repentance tonight. The test of genuine repentance. The test of genuine repentance. Jesus placed the doctrine of repentance at the pinnacle of gospel declaration when He preached, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We need to be certain here tonight, absolutely convinced in our mind, though there are many in this hour who are not convinced of this absolute. Repentance is a condition for regeneration. Do you believe that? Repentance is a condition for regeneration. Men cannot turn to God until they first turn from their sin. Made no mistake about it. The biblical gospel executes an ultimatum that forces men to choose between their sin and God's Christ. That's an absolute. We can have our sin or we can have Jesus, but we cannot have them simultaneously. We can't have both at the same time. It's either bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ or forsake our sin, one or the other. Amen? Throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus 
and the apostles always communicated the full expression of God. They were, if you will, the first real full gospel preachers. They never cloaked the message. They never sought to soften the blow of that gospel hammer. All throughout the gospel, into the book of Acts, the message of the cross is always presented in all its brutal power and beauty. In every single situation where you see these men confronting sinners in their sin, they always demanded that they forsake all their rebellion. However, in today's gospel message, there's a void of biblical repentance. If not by direct exclusion, then by subtle implication. They say it's too negative. Amen. It's too offensive. It's an affront to the modern rules of decorum. We no longer confront carnality and sin. We seek to appeal to it to draw them into Jesus. This is backwards. This is perversion. This is deviance. Amen. In the eyes of God. Thus the Churches filled with multitudes who have never been made to see that God commands them to repent. True, they may be familiar with the term. Men banner that term around with ease, but they don't know what it really means. They're utterly void of the fruit. This is why you can look all over the Pentecostal church world and see men unashamedly participating in sin and calling Jesus Lord at the same time. It's the gospel that's being preached to them from the pulpit. Amen. Yes, many will say they've repented, but when pressed, their repentance must be repented of. Amen. Church, false repentance is the only thing worse than no repentance at all. Amen. You'd be better for a man never to come and dabble with this. Never to play with it. Amen. If you're not going to give all to God, then stay in the world. I were too hot or cold, but because thou art lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. God's not to be played with. He's not to be toyed with. You don't call God to a negotiation table. You submit to Him, surrender to Him, and confess that He is Lord. But thank God, you and I tonight, we have the Word of God to test the validity of our repentance. We can look in the Bible. We can find out, have we met the criteria of repentance? In our text here, back in the book of Leviticus, this is what we're going to look at here tonight. I see five criteria whereby we must pass, we must come under, we must produce fruit. Five criteria that must be met to pass this biblical test of genuine repentance. First of all, and most obvious, is confession. There must be confession for there to be genuine repentance. He said, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespass against me. Genuine repentance will always side with God against itself. Every time, no exception, it will, as they say, come absolutely clean. Those who have truly repented will admit they were wrong and that their sin was wicked. Amen. The psalmist said in 51 and 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I come to tell you tonight, 
when people are hesitant or otherwise slow to acknowledge that they were wrong, when they try to offer up excuses or justifications, amen, then there is a lack of genuine repentance there. Not just when a man comes to the altar for the first time, but should a Christian fall into sin, the pattern is always the same. Genuine repentance will come clean and confess. It's only logical to conclude that no man can turn from sin without first admitting that he's guilty of it. You know, if he won't say I'm wrong, if we won't say that was sin, that wasn't right, there's no excuse for it, then why would I have to confess? Why would I have to make amends? Why would restitution be necessary if guilt is not acknowledged? A man can never be found until he's willing to admit that he's lost. Thus, confession is the most basic element of biblical repentance. First John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, it literally means covenant. To make covenant with God. To be one with God in mind and heart. To see it as God sees it. To hate what God hates and to love what He loves. To stand on the side of Calvary and say, Yea and Amen, let every sin be damned. Yea and Amen, carnality is a stench in the nostrils of God. To side not just, Amen, against somebody down the road, around the apostates on TBN, but to side against myself. Not just to call a crucifixion for somebody else, but be willing to attend my own... It's easy to point out another, folks. There's another thing altogether to confess when we're not right. The word iniquity used in our text is more far-reaching than merely a single act. It means perverseness. Perverseness. That's what it means. Amen? In the New Testament, it means lawlessness. But it's more far-reaching than just a single act. You know, sometimes in the church today, you get the idea that people representing God as if He's gotten used to the idea of sin. As if it's just, He's given over to the fact that, well, sin is here. And sin is just part of the equation. Absolutely not. God hates sin tonight. I said, God hates sin tonight. God hates my sin tonight. God hates your sin. Amen. He's immutable. He never changes. Amen. He sent Christ to deliver men from sin. It's a perversion. I said sin is a perversion. God never intended for His creation to sin against Him, to rebel against Him. Amen. It's a perverseness, and we need to see every single act as such to confess it. It's awful, terrible, evil, and wicked. True repentance opens the inner eye of the heart to clearly see the gross rebellion displayed in any independence from God. Proverbs 28 and 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. That word covereth means to clad self. Amen. To, you know, uh, uh, protect self. To put armor on self. To defend self. 
itself. And you know, it, it doesn't just imply to, to uh, try to hide sin. But if you try to redefine it or try to reduce its severity, make it, you know, merely a mistake, just a shortcoming, or my wife was aggravating me. Somebody, it was the circumstances. It was a situation. I wouldn't have done that if somebody wouldn't have, you know, put me in that place. Listen to me. You're not going to have mercy if you don't confess. It's iniquity. It's perverseness. I'm talking to us tonight. Amen. In the church. This is so very important. This is so fundamental to victory. And we're going to walk in the sunshine. And we ought to, friend. I can tell you that Christianity is glorious and wonderful. Amen. Joy, unspeakable and full of glory. That, but that comes, amen, from clean hands and a pure heart. And there's only one way to get that. You're not going to just come in here and pronounce yourself clean. You're going to have to go through the narrow way of the cross. There's only one way. Amen. There's a straight gate. Amen. It's a narrow way. Few that be that find it. Because you've got to humble yourself. And the first thing you've got to do is confess. Biblical repentance is free from all evasions. There's no excuses. No rationalizations. I'm wrong. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. There's no excuse. I'm ashamed of myself. It's wicked and evil. I have no no other place to go but to Calvary and to cry out for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the man that finds mercy. Amen. At the mercy seat. Amen. Biblical repentance denounces not only acts of sin, but the principle of sin that dominates the fallen nature. Amen. You know, one of the first fruits of genuine repentance is to acknowledge, to recognize, and to comprehend that we have nothing of ourselves that we can offer to God. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. I can remember when I got born again. Oh, I came under horrible, terrible conviction. I wrestled with the cost of submitting and surrendering myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew that I was wicked and evil and I fell on my face in a little apartment on Nicholson Drive in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and I gave my life to Jesus. But I come to tell you for weeks on end the Spirit of God kept revealing to me how evil, how wicked, how ungodly, how unruly, how unfit I was that everything that I did was wrong. My whole existence was fashioned around running from God Almighty. Oh, I was made to say, there's nothing good about me in and of myself. God revealed the magnitude, the severity of my sin, and that that sin was against Him. Against Him. Thus, repentant men no longer trust themselves. I know there's nothing I can bring into this. 
There's nothing about me that's profitable to the kingdom. Absolutely nothing apart from Christ and that which has been brought through the sanctifying power of the cross. Whatever talent I may have, whatever ability, whatever intellect, all of it is as dung. It's got to be laid down. Everything has to come through Calvary. I've got to become as a little child and come in with nothing. No preconceived notions. Allow myself to be emptied of everything in the past. Any man who is in Christ Jesus is a new creature. All things have passed away. That's not just those things that are obvious and overtly wicked. But everything you were, everything you knew, all of it was done. has to be laid down. You bring it in, you defile your Christianity. The repentant see themselves apart from Jesus as dangerous and capable of the vilest transgressions. And they'll admit it. They'll admit it. Oh, yes. That doesn't matter if you've been saved 40 years. That'll stay with you. If you stay close, don't, don't get very far from that. I know what I am. I know what I am without Jesus. I just step a little bit away from Him. Amen. In Christ, I'm a conqueror. I can overcome. Amen. I can live free. Amen. I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm a saint. The Bible says, I seek to be justified by Christ, and yet am found a sinner. I make Christ the minister of sin. God forbid. No, no. I'm not a sinner. I'm a believer. I'm a saint. But I know apart from Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. There's no good thing within me. And notice, our text reveals a confession not only for personal, but for historic sin. Don't just say, oh, I confess mine iniquity, but the iniquity of their fathers. This is a great problem in the church. We live in a generation that's bound by the idolatry of family, where people love their mother and their father, their wife, their children, amen, more than they love Jesus. You might even be able to touch them, but don't you touch that child. Don't you correct them. Don't you put your hand. It's humanism. It's idolatry. It's carnality. Jesus said, if you don't hate, that's what he said. Father, mother, brother, sister. And you hate your own life. He is to be preeminent. It's an amazing thing. This blind generation who read the books and the stories, preach about them and quote the preachers that were tied to stakes when they was 20 years old and burned alive and leaving four and five children and a wife. And we all applaud them and build their sepulchers. But if someone tried to lay down their life, just go on the mission field and leave their wife here, we condemn them as being a bad father. We're blind. I said we're blind. There's a lack of repentance. Amen. But there has to be a willingness to condemn the philosophies and the false concepts that led us into this life, groomed us into a life in rebellion. How often you hear people say they come in the church and then they get up and testify and then they talk about mom and daddy. They was good folk. What are you talking about? They were good folk. Well, mom and daddy, they, they did the best they could. They raised me. They weren't Christians. They was good folk. Listen to me. That ain't what the Bible says. The Bible said they were wicked and evil and godless. That's what the Bible said. What is the 
this talk about, well, mom and daddy did it this way. If mommy and daddy wasn't born again, then you better separate yourself from everything they taught you because the carnal mind is enmity against God. And if they were lost, they were carnal. And if they were carnal, they hated God. And there's no truth that could have flowed through them. People don't like that, though, because there's not genuine repentance. See, leave it all behind. Not just your drunkenness, everything, everything, your life, your life was a stench. Not just your behavior. Everything you and I were, it was a stench. Utterly unacceptable to be cast into the lake of fire forever. And such confessions will be ripe with shame and grief for the disgrace brought upon the gospel. And this is where true repentance, it strikes at the heart, at the very essence of the glory of God. Because if a man's truly repented, then he will first and foremost be brought in a union and a sympathy not for himself, not even so much for others, though there will be love, but there will be a sympathy for God and God's cause and God's Christ and God's gospel. That will be the foremost thought of his heart and his mind. The psalmist said in 38 and 18, For I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin loses death. Sin opens the door for the devil. Don't you lightly look at sin. Anytime you sin at all, there's an avenue there for the devil to come through. It brings a reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I know that God loves me. I know that He'll forgive me. If you don't know that, you can't make it. I'm not overlooking or, or belittling that, that truth. It is the truth. But we've got to view sin rightly. We've got to see it right. And we hadn't spent most of the time in the church. We hadn't spent enough time meditating on how God wants us to view our sin. When we see it right, then we can see the great mercy and the great love of Calvary. How marvelous. How, how beyond imagination and human comprehension it is that Jesus would die for us. The second criteria is a zeal against sin. And that also, this is a part of the confession, that they have walked contrary unto me. You know, I thank God He likes to ask more than one question. He likes to probe and get to the bottom of it. You ever been in churches where someone comes up and they put their arm around some repentant sinner and they say, now, do you believe you're a sinner? Okay, let's move on. They don't want to probe. They don't want to find out if there's any real genuine... Listen to me. That's where the real issue is. Amen. That your iniquity has separated you and has strained you from God. This is where we have to find out, are people genuine? This is where we have to find out, are we genuine? Amen. So see, God here, He asks more than one question. Have you sinned? Yes. Amen. What about your mom and daddy and all that you came out of? Was that evil too? How will you respond to that? And not only that, I want to I want to hear out of your own mouth when you were living that way. Were you contrary to me? And do you believe I was contrary to you? Oh yes. I was against you, God. 
Sinners are not victims of sin. They're culprits. Wholly responsible. Listen to me. We don't believe that anymore. That you can tell in the tone of preaching. It's not like a man, a criminal has been brought in a courtroom. Amen. It's like a man has been simply brought into an emergency room. He had an accident. Instead, he committed a crime. You never see that in the Bible. Jesus ain't never talked to nobody like they were a victim of sin. You hear me? Listen to me. If sin is just a mere, you know, uh, occurrence of our existence, then God couldn't condemn us for it. Amen. Genuine repentance produces a hatred against our former sins. You know, you read in the next verse in Second Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul, he had dealt with in the first letter, fornication in the church. And he reproved him and said, your glorying is not good. You need to take that wicked one and separate all oh, church discipline. That's unloving. That's uncharitable in this hour. But you know, he said, repentance. You need to repent after a godly manner. And when they, you know, obeyed his letter and submitted to his counsel, he wrote back in that verse 10, that's in the context of uh, uh, commending them for their response to his letter. And in verse 11, he says, Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You bore the fruit of real repentance. You, you brought forth the criteria that tells me indeed you repented. You brought revenge against that sin. There was an indignation. There was a zeal. There was a holy fear. I believe you really repented. You agreed with what I said about it. As real faith produces works, genuine repentance always inspires a holy zeal against sin. Where there is no zeal and no hatred against sin, then there's only vain repentance. Amen. Oh, I tell you what, when I go into a church and I sit down to listen to a preacher, in the first five minutes, I want to be able to detect two things. Number one, I want to be able to detect that he don't care what I think about it. Because I didn't come to hear him talk. I come to hear God talk. And I know God doesn't care what I think about it. Second of all, I want to sense a holy hatred for sin. And if I don't sense that, amen, it's time to run for my life. Because it's going to be a dangerous place. When our denunciations of sin are met with the now-nows and the oh-mys, we're in a dangerous place. You get little groups and around certain circles of people, and you begin to say something that's evil and wicked. Oh, to God, or what have you. People say, now, now, brother. You ever heard of that? Oh, my, now, we don't want to offend people, brother. Oh, that's the, that's the now-nows and the oh, my's. Amen. That's carnal. That's the devil. Amen. When, we, when your denunciations of sin are met with it, you just think about it for a moment. The Holy Ghost. This is an absolute. Write it down in the cover of your Bible. It will always be true. It will never change. I don't care what man says about it. The Holy Ghost never comes to rescue sin from being exposed. No, no, no. The Holy Ghost is never coming on the side of sin and saying we need to be careful, brother. No, the Holy Ghost rejoices and the exposure is it. It rejoices charity. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. Confession of sin and faith, though in Jesus. Thank God. 
that places us in union with Him and with His cross. And the cross is the only thing that can separate a man from the shame of his guilt and his sin. That's the only thing. Now, I want you to know here, and I believe if you're born again, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Make no mistake about it. The work of Calvary is real. It's not just merely a judicial pronouncing, amen, or a judicial pronouncement. It is an experiential cleansing. And when you have been set free and cleansed, you know it, amen. There's been a liberating. There's been a freedom that takes place. I was a wicked man. There's nobody in this church more vile, more wicked, and more godless than I was. I was filled with murder and hatred. I was evil to the core. I committed all types of unspeakable atrocities against God Almighty. My countenance was dark. I was on my way to hell. But one night in a little apartment on Nicholson Drive, I knelt down by my bed and I looked to Calvary. I looked to the wounded lamb upon the cross and one drop of that divine blood cleansed away a lifetime of sin. I was made clean. Nobody had to tell me I was forgiven. I knew I had been redeemed. It's a real experiential thing. Amen. It's not something somebody tells you, brother. Amen. I think you're right with God. I think you're a Christian. No, no. There's an assurance about coming into the reality of salvation. But it requires repentance. Ellie Maxwell said, Confession of our sin implies rejection of our sin. Its power is broken only as we come into harmony with the cross. But the cross is no place of concealment, no place of hiding or covering of sin. It is the place where we break with sin, the place of exposure, the place of guilt, and the place of open shame. When we're so desperate, we're willing to say, this is what I am. I want freedom more than I want to uphold a reputation. I want freedom more than anything at all. It doesn't matter. Let me be exposed if need be. But I want to be cleansed. Separation by the cross of Christ is a key to being freed from sympathizing with sin. It only makes sense if that cross has not come in by faith. Amen. Listen to me. And it hasn't severed a man from his guilt. Then it won't sever him from his sympathy for sin. And all sinners sympathize with sin. Amen. You know, if you were to come up here tonight and preach against drugs and preach against drunkenness and fornication. I was guilty of all that. I was guilty of most of that every single day. Sometimes hour by hour and moment by moment. You could grind it under your heel. You could speak of it in the most severe terms. I'm not going to be offended. I've been set free by the power of the Holy Ghost and His Gospel. I don't mind. Talk about the drunkard, David. Talk about how awful drunkenness is. I drank like a fish every day. I love whiskey. I love beer. I love drugs. You could speak against all that. It was evil. It was wicked. I'm not going to get offended. I'm not going to tell you now, brother, be careful. Don't be careful. Don't be careful. Slaughter it. Bring it out of the open. Cut its throat. I'm with God with this. Amen. I'm with God. I've been set free. The cross delivered me. Amen. That person is dead and buried with Christ. 
I've been risen up with Him. That's a true work of the cross. Amen. But you have people in this church today, so many people, oppression, confusion, uncertainty. All that, a lot of that is, is just not really a clean break from the past. You know, it's an amazing thing today. They say, oh, you know, I'm depressed. Depressed. What, I, what business does any gospel preacher need to be using such terminology? Oh, I've got some people in the church that are bipolar. Amen. They're not bipolar. They're buying their heart. Amen. They got a divided heart. Amen. Are they, some of them are paranoid and they're manic. Amen. Depression is not a sickness. It's a sin. Rejoice evermore. What do you have to be sad about? Aren't you blood-bought? Aren't you filled with the Holy Ghost? Haven't you been delivered by the power of this gospel? Aren't you on your way to heaven? Isn't your name written in the book of life? Then rejoice, for your names are in heaven, church. There's no reason to be depressed. You get depressed, you're in sin. Rise above it. Pull yourself up. Live in the sunshine. Well, there ain't no sunshine. Well, Jesus lives in your heart. There ought to be plenty of sunshine. I don't see it. We don't live by what we see. We live by, I don't feel it. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I don't care whether you feel him or not. Believe the Word of God and rejoice. It's a sin to be depressed. Most of that... It's just people holding on to their idols. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. I was so bound by drugs. I'm telling you, I woke up in the morning shaking. Nobody more bound by drugs than I was. I can't imagine it. And, you know, they told me, you're sick, son. There's just some kind of predisposed, you know, uh, uh, you know genetic uh, character flaw. And you're an addict. And we'll have to send you down to the farm or whatever. Yeah, they put you through the 12-step program. I didn't go through a 12-step program. I went through a one-step program. Amen. I came to Calvary. Came to Jesus. And I was set free. I couldn't think. I did handfuls of LSD. I couldn't. I'd, I'd wrestle around for hours. So mad. Throwing stuff through the windows. Because I lost my keys. Couldn't find them. They'd be sitting on the coffee table. I had fried my mind. I lost the ability to analyze. When I got born again, God healed this mind. He set me free. He made me whole. I didn't have to go to the psychologist. All I had to do was repent and look to Jesus. And I was set free. Hallelujah. But notice the word contrary in our text. It's a strong term, meaning hostile. You've got to confess. You know, this is what I had preachers come in my pulpit in the last two or three years and get up and say, you know, I wasn't really that bad a person. I just didn't know God. What? You're not born again then. Isn't that common? Oh, it, it's common. It's common particularly where there's religion. You know, I wasn't that bad. I just, I just didn't know God. I was ignorant. No, you were hostile against God. Every sinner is a God-hater. Every sinner is a God-hater. 
Every sinner is a God. You were a, I had a man, we went a couple years ago on New Year's Eve. And we went down to the French Quarter. We're preaching on the street. And there was a bum there. And one of the brethren talked to him most of the night. He seemed somewhat broken and somewhat humble. And we told him, as we would normally do, look, if you really want to get right with God, we'll do anything for you. We'll take you home. We'll clean you up. We'll, we'll feed you, clothe you, give you a job. You'll have to work. Amen. You've got to be willing to repent, live for Jesus. But we'll help you. And so we talked to him, kind of probed him. He agreed. Got him in the van, brought him over there to Denny's, fed him. He seemed so humble. He stunk. He didn't have any, or he had shoes, but not much shoes. And he was just apologizing for the smell. And we just loved him, brought him home. And I took him in my house. And when I take people in my house like that, and I do that from time to time, whether out of the prison or off the street, amen, I'll put them in a room in the back. But I'm not going to let my children stay back there. That ain't wise. I'm not accusing nobody. I just I want to be wise. So it took all nine of my children, amen, as we are accustomed to do. We went in the master bedroom. We're used to That's why, amen, put us in this dormitory over here. This is the presidential suites. For three stalls, three showers, and 20 bug beds, amen. Never been so good for the Williams family in that room, I can tell you that. But we all got in that one room. And the children on pallets, they've been doing that all their life. They think nothing of it. We teach them this is the love of Christ. And he's there in that room. We never tell him anything, but uh, I don't know how long he'd been with us, a couple weeks. He's starting to manifest a little bit and say things and having to deal with him. And uh, one morning we got up and we're on the way to prayer meeting, and I could tell that he was bothered. And I kept looking at him, and I finally I said, Brother, what's wrong with you? You look like you don't have the victory. And you know, he just made a little joke, kind of passed it off lightly. He said, Well, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I went to the bed bathroom, and I looked there in your boy's room, and I saw they were all gone. And he said, and I wondered what had happened. And he kind of made a little joke. He said, you know, I thought maybe the rapture took place. And I said, well, no, brother. And I began to explain to him. I don't know you. I'm not accusing you of anything. But I don't know you. And I'm not going to be unwise. And all my children are sleeping in my room with me. And when I said that, he became, became very offended. And he began to say certain things. And I was just trying to explain it to him. And I said, you know, uh, using myself as an example. I said, you know, I never did anything like that in the world but I was capable of anything and then I said because I was a God hater oh and he looked at me he said I never hated God I never hated God I said oh yes you did I said the Bible says that the carnal mind is enmity against God that means hostility that same Greek word is translated in Galatians chapter 5 in the works of the flesh as hatred there is that's what it means How many sinners you know don't have a carnal mind? Amen. How many of you say, I was a sinner, but I didn't have a carnal mind? If you had a carnal mind, you hated God. I looked at him. I said, if you say you didn't hate God, I'm here to tell you, you don't love Him here this morning. You hadn't repented. There's something wrong. You didn't see yourself the way you needed to see yourself. Something's not right. When we don't agree, we walk contrary. But not only that, He walked contrary to us. That's another thing. Amen. Hence, those who refuse to acknowledge the other utter breach that sin causes in divine human relationships have not repented. Is that not Christianity 101? 
the sinfulness of man and the unapproachable holiness of God. But I promise you go to most churches and just stand up there and say, every one of you hated God before you were born again. That probably stoned you before the service is over. The re- I began to meditate upon this because when I did go out and say it, I could feel waves of holy love bathing me on the pulpit. Amen. <laughs> If their eyes had been machine guns, I'd have been full of holes. Amen. They didn't like it. They didn't agree with it because they didn't believe it. The third criteria of humility. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, genuine repentance produces a humility of heart that readily receives correction from the Word of God. When men chafe under the application of the Word of God, their repentance must be considered suspect. This will be a pattern in a man's life. He will be as a little child. As long as he's walking in that original repentance, he will be approachable. The wisdom that cometh from above. Amen. The wisdom that descended down from above. That wisdom, amen, is approachable. You can approach a man. You can correct him. For true repentance is to turn from self-government to submission to God's Word. You know, if a man refuses to take correction from the Word of God, you wonder if he's ever seen the benefit of being corrected by the Word of God. You know, if you go and you were uh, to walk down the street, every time you were walk uh, down a certain path, you'd find a thousand dollar bill. Amen. You might find one one time and think, well, uh, that's, you know, just something that I've found, a thousand dollar bill. Go back there tomorrow. There's one in the same place. Go back there next week and next day and every day you go back there and I tell you what, you're going to say, that's a good path for me to walk on. Amen. And when you repent and reap the benefits of this gospel, then you're going to know this is the way. Reproofs are the way. Reproofs and structure, a way of life. Correction is only grievous to them that are out of the way. Yes, sir. You won't forget that. Oh, this was awful to my flesh, but this is the way of life. I do know that. When people are offended with correction, when they're consumed with what others think, rather than what Jesus thinks, then there's a lack of genuine repentance. An unteachable spirit that's prevalent in today's church reveals just such a lack. So often men become frustrated, testy, and angry when sin is denounced. When you have to approach someone and sit them down and say, Now, brother, oh, to think of it, that I'm going to have to tell this man he's not going to like it. When there's that atmosphere, you know you're not dealing with someone that's familiar with genuine repentance. Amen. The fourth criteria is a criteria of acceptance of punishment. We know in our case it's in theory. But nevertheless, it must be heartfelt. And then they accept the punishment of their iniquity. Not to say that there's not reaping and sowing in this hour. Amen. But we know the real punishment for our sin is death and hell. Amen. Genuine repentance agrees with God's judgment of sin. Now we know that Jesus has paid the penalty. Amen. But do we believe God's judgments as expressed in the Word of God? Do we believe that those are just? You know, Jesus admonished us and He told us, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. You know, you have to take note of that when Jesus points back to a specific Old Testament account. What are the lessons that He would have us learn? 
Well, you remember the story well. The angels visited Sodom and Gomorrah and came there, I believe, because of the intercession of old man Abraham and touched on Lot, amen, and said, about tomorrow, this so we're going to destroy this place. We're going to burn it to the ground. You get your wife, you get your daughters, and you get on out of here as fast as you can. And Lot lingered, amen. His eyes had been, you know, grossed over and his ears dull of hearing because of the environment that he had been in. And you know, he began to, to try to warn other people and they thought he was a madman. And finally, at the very last hour, the angels bodily removed him and his family out of the city and brought him out and pointed him in the right direction and said, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't look back. Get to higher ground, but run for your life. And we know the story well. Lot's wife turned around and turned into a pillar of salt. And Jesus said, you and I need to remember that story. Well, I preached a message one time on remember Lot's wife. And as I wrestled with God in prayer, what does it mean? I've heard a lot of different preachers preach on it. What was the reason? Why did she turn around? Some people said it was her house and other her wardrobe and whatever it may have been. Her sons-in-laws are, uh, they've said all kind of things and I don't doubt that all of that played a part. But as I prayed, I believe the Holy Ghost showed me why she turned around. She turned around because she didn't believe it was really that bad. And when Lot told her that God is going to burn it all up tomorrow, I believe she said, are you kidding? I mean, why? That sweet little bag boy at the grocery store, he's so nice. The milkman, he's not, he's not that, he's so polite. The charities, the good. I know there's things here that are not perfectly right, but would God put, kill everybody? I, I, I just question, is it that bad? I believe she didn't believe it, friend. Amen. She still sympathized with it. That's why she turned around to see whether God would judge it or not. Listen to me. If you hang around long enough in sin, you better believe what the Word of God said. It'll send you to hell. It'll kill you. The wages of sin is death. Just stay in it. Look at it and stare at it long enough to see if that's true. And you'll wake up in hell. It is that bad. All sin is that bad. All sin. You better agree with God. Remember, Lot's wife, it's part of genuine repentance. Maybe we don't understand it. But I can tell you if he said it's bad. It's bad. Amen. The judgment of God in this hour is dodged and ducked. And the reason is because men unconsciously believe it's too harsh. It's not really just. You know, I deserve hell. I lived for Jesus for 20 years. I deserve hell. I deserve hell. I deserve hell right now. And if I live for Jesus another 60 years, should he tarry? I'll still deserve hell. I don't deserve heaven. <laughs> you don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve Jesus. It's the mercy of God. Why do we get offended, amen, when we just tell the truth? Why do people get offended, amen? We don't delight. Listen to me. 
We don't delight in the destruction of the wicked, but we have to agree. At Calvary, God displayed His utter abhorrence for sin. You know, we always point to Calvary as a lesson there for us is a display of God's love, and so it is. I don't deny that, but it teaches us something else. See the bloody, beaten, mutilated, tortured Christ. This is what God thinks about sin. This is what God thinks about sin. That God, it's a picture of His unwavering justice and judgment against all rebellion. True repentance heartily accepts this brutal expression. The psalmist said in 58 and 10, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. You know, you try to understand that Scripture. How can I sit back and wash my feet in the blood of my lost relatives? Amen. And those that I know that are damned and on their way to hell. Well, I believe it no matter what. We've got to side with God. But I believe the blood that's spoken of here is not so much Brother Timmy's blood, not so much somebody else's blood, but my blood. Amen. My blood. I'm going to see the judgment of God against this life. And I'm going to rejoice with it. I'm going to stand with God. Perhaps the most hated doctrine of the Bible is the doctrine of hell. Amen. There was a preacher one time that I was close with. He'd never been on the street with us, never seen his preach out in the open air. But he heard reports that all we did was tell people they were going to hell. And time and time again, it was brought to my attention. Why just can't go out there and tell people they're going to hell. All you do is tell people they're going to hell. And one day I sat down with him and I said, Brother, what do you hear? He says, I hear that all you do is tell people they're going to hell. Now, you know, listen to me. I'm very mindful of what the Word of God says. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and you're ashamed of my words, amen, in this wicked and adulterous generation, then I will be ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of the doctrine of hell. And I told him, I said, that's really not true. We really don't do that. In fact, a lot of times we hardly mention hell. But nevertheless, there wouldn't be a thing wrong with me going down here in Wilmer, Alabama and standing on a corner and telling everybody that walked by, if you're not born again, you're going to hell. That's the truth, friend. And the truth is right. And the I'm not saying that would be what the Holy Ghost would necessarily have you say, but it couldn't be sin to quote the Bible. Jesus heals. Ain't nobody find fault with that. Jesus is coming back. All you tell people is Jesus is coming back. Ain't nobody got a problem with that. Is that the full gospel? But nobody would find fault with it. It's because we're ashamed. We're ashamed. We're ashamed of what the Bible says about it. And we'll never actually represent God until there's a repentance of all that which is worldly, of this world, amen. No, we don't delight in the destruction of the wicked, but we have to side with God. Amen. Hell is only harsh in the eyes of unrepentant, amen, of the unrepentant. In, in reality, the greatest terror, listen to me, that's not the greatest terror for the sinner, amen. The greatest terror, the most pressing danger for the sinner is not hell, but God Himself. You hear me? 
Hell's bad. But worse than that is the creator of hell. He's the one that men have offended. And he's the one they're going to have to get an account to. See, that's the most catastrophic moment in the existence of the sinner when he stands before his maker whom he has rejected. The Bible says, amen, there's a great white throne in him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away from. And there was found no place for them. They were afraid. Amen. They were so afraid. Amen. The Bible says the great men, the mighty men, the chief captains, the bondmen, the free men, they'll all cry out for the rocks and for the mountains to cover them and hide them from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Oh, Jesus is never angry. That's a humanistic Jesus. Amen. The Bible, Jesus ain't sin. Amen. He's God. And the last criteria here tonight. Amen. The criteria of grace rendering a moral change. He said in verse 42, Then will I remember my covenant. Hallelujah. Oh, you ought to slip up your hand and thank God for the covenant of grace. You ought to thank God for the blood. Thank God for the power of this gospel to render a moral change. Oh, to be regenerated. To be born from above. Hallelujah. To be washed in the blood. Oh, for the Holy Ghost to take that old hard, stony heart out and to put in that tender heart and that He would write His law on our inward parts and fill us with His Spirit and cause us to walk in all of His ways. Thank You, Lord, for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you repent fully and completely, you're going to reap the benefits, the full deliverance expressed in this Gospel covenant. To many to Today, many have reduced repentance merely to a sorrow for sin. Yet we read in 2 Corinthians that there is a sorrow that's of this world that's absolutely useless. Don't you think for a moment, people are sorry They got caught for their sin. But that's not necessarily repentance, amen? Repent means to think differently afterwards, to reconsider. But to think differently about sin is more far-reaching than many suppose. Repentance turns our preference for sin into an abhorrence for sin. Such a change of mind and heart will always yield a corresponding change in our behavior. Charles Finney said, Repentance is a change of mind as regards to God and towards sin. It is not only a change of views, but a change of the ultimate preference or choice of the soul. It is a voluntary change, and by consequence, involves a change of feeling and of action toward God and toward sin. See, this is why the more fuller definition of repentance is to turn from all sin. Literally speaking, there are words translated repent and repentance in the New Testament that means an about face, to turn away from. That's the more fuller definition. Amen. And the latter part of that verse in Proverbs 28 and 13 said, He that covereth shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Amen. See, but accordingly, to call men to repentance is to communicate God's demand that men cease from sinning. See, that's the real thought. And in this hour, it's considered unreasonable. Even in the church, when you tell men, stop. see, a few years ago we were preaching in front of the Illusions Club, and I would cry out, repent, 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. One night I sensed the Spirit of God telling me, tell them, quit breaking my law. Tell them, stop sinning against me. And as soon as I began to make that truth and apply it to their heart, make it real to them, there was a violent reaction. Oh, God doesn't expect anybody to quit sinning. The Bible says that we are to present our body as a living sacrifice, holy. That means without sin. And it goes on to say that is our reasonable service. But in this hour, when you tell men, God expects for you to forsake your sin, they believe that it's unreasonable. Acts 17 and 30, In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere, repent, turn away, think differently about it, quit breaking my law. Though such a thought is unpopular, it's irrefutably biblical. Amen. All over the Bible you see this thought. This is merely a sampling. Psalms 4 and 4, Stand in awe and sin not. John 8 and 11, Jesus told the woman, Caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He'd have never commanded that if it weren't possible through grace. Oh, I know in and of ourselves, ain't nobody can do that in their own strength. No, no. But through the power of this Gospel, John 5 and 14, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. First. Corinthians 15 and 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. First John 2 and 1, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. Few, whether they're in the church or otherwise, amen, believe that such claims are serious. They do. They say nobody can stop sinning. But when a man makes such a confession, he puts himself in awful company. Because you can turn right over to Second Peter in his epistle. And he describes false teachers and their converts. And he says they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. And if the false church isn't ceasing from sin, that tells me the true church has to be doing it. Amen. Through grace. Through grace. Nobody can do that without the mercy of God and without the grace of God. That's why the blood of Jesus has been provided that we could be cleansed, that we could be changed, that there could be a render, a moral change rendered in each of us when we submit ourselves to the claims of the gospel. When we bring our sin and we bring the sinner, ourself, whether it's at the point of salvation or any other point, should we fall, not if, amen, or if, not when, if we fall, if we bring our sin and the sinner into the light, and view it as God, and agree with God against it, then God will deliver us. He'll set us free. He'll set us on a high place. He'll put our feet on a solid rock, and we'll be grafted into the vine, and we will bear fruit. Why don't you stand here tonight? Hallelujah. This is the test of genuine repentance. Perhaps there's some area that the Spirit of God has quickened to you. Maybe a lack. Maybe something you hadn't seen properly. Amen. No man's going to rise above his notions about God. We have to think right thoughts. It's the truth that makes us free. Why don't you come in these altars tonight and thank the Lord for genuine repentance. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.